As we have been singing, we live in this fallen world under the relentless pressures of suffering, tragedy, trial, disappointment, injustice, abuse, frustration, failure, anxiety, heartache. A lot of words, aren't there? A lot of descriptors that we've come to understand to describe this world in which we live. But pity that person who believes in bad luck. What a hopeless perspective to think the underlying cause of all our travails is bad luck or blind chance. If you have been reconciled to God through the salvation in Jesus, you have come to know that we are never helpless victims of bad luck. Never. Embracing a biblical worldview, we know that God, not chance, runs the universe. And equipped with this conviction, we pray. We seek the face of God for help in the midst of our trials because He is there. He cares. He hears. He acts in our best interest. The hard part is to trust that He will indeed act in our best interest. That's the battle of faith. And the temptation is to pray like pagans. That is to pray that God will intervene in our lives by fighting bad luck. That His cruel chance has visited us with evil. And in our travail, we beg God in prayer to crush it and to reverse our fortunes. Certainly He will come to our aid and fight against this evil that has entered into our life. So we plead for God to fix our problem, to relieve our pain, to neutralize our enemy, never stopping to consider what God wills to do through our suffering. What we need to recognize as God's people is that the sovereign Lord of the universe is at all times in all circumstances, laboring for the redemption of his people. Now, redemption has taken place historically in the work that Jesus Christ has done. We know that everything before that pointed to the cross and everything since that time and his work of redemption there leads from the cross. But nonetheless, we're looking at it really as a story There is a work that God is doing, putting together the redemption of His people in everything that He is doing. He is always working to save us as a people. And this truth needs to affect the way that we pray, lest we pray like pagans. In the first chapter of 1 Samuel, I invite you to turn there in your Bibles where we meet a woman of prayer who was no pagan. And in the prayer of Hannah of Ephraim, we are challenged to pray with a genuinely biblical worldview. But before we delve into this narrative, we must consider the context because it has so much to say, not just with the book itself, and it is very important there, but even I think with the sermon at hand here today, the message at hand, it is so vital to understand this book contextually. Hannah lived during one of the darkest eras in Israeli history. 
It was also a time of great darkness for Hannah personally, as we shall see later. Israel was mired in the cyclical vortex that we know today as the era of the judges. For a very long time, Israel's relationship with God languished in a repeating pattern of suffering the consequences of moral failure. We could probably, most of us that have read the Bible are familiar with the Old Testament, write out the pattern quite quickly. Israel would reject God and then suffer the long season of oppression from one of her enemies. Israel would cry out in desperation to the Lord. God would deliver Israel through the leadership of a judge who would defeat Israel's enemies at the time. And then after a period of peace, what would Israel do? Go right back to it. Right back to rejecting God and the whole cycle would repeat. What Hannah does not know as she lives in this world is that her son would serve as a unique bridge out of this era of the judges. He would serve as the last judge and as the first prophet in a new era of prophets. And as the first prophet of that era, he would anoint the first two kings of Israel's monarchy, linking together prophet and king in a unique way in this time of history. Saul and David are anointed by Samuel, and these kings will stabilize Israel and mediate the theocracy under God's covenant in relationship with the prophets. Now think of this, and it's crucial to our understanding of this sermon today. At the start of 1 Samuel, Israel is a loose confederation of politically weak, morally degenerate tribes. By the end of 2 Samuel, Israel is the most powerful kingdom in the eastern Mediterranean region, thriving under the rule of King David. God is up to big things as this book opens. He is moving behind the scenes to change the course of Israel's history. Indeed, he is putting together the plot of redemption, and it's now come to this place, this hinge pin. The man that we know by the name of Samuel. God is up to big things here. But I ask the question, what does Samuel's future mother, what does Hannah know about all this? What does she know about this course of history? She knows nothing. She knows only the unrelenting frustration, the agonizing heartache and bitter sorrow that is her sad life. A sketch of the details follows, beginning at verse 1 of 1 Samuel 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Hannah suffered the indignity of polygamy. This isn't a man who has a wife whom he divorced and now is living with another wife. This is a man with two wives under one roof. And so Hannah suffers the indignity of polygamy, the deprivation of soul suffered by a woman who is forced to share her husband's body and spirit with another woman who she has to interact with every day. 
Worse by far in that culture, she was unable to bear children, and that is likely the reason that her husband took a second wife in that day, in that setting. Infertility in a culture that depended so heavily upon sons to perpetuate the family name and manage the family estate was perceived as a severe form of discipline from God. It was not understood as it ought to be, and Hannah was set on the fringes of acceptance. We find the experience of her family life at verse 3. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city, that's Elkanah, her husband, to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord. Eli and his immoral sons will play a major role in the unfolding of this narrative that is to come. But here we need only to know that Elkanah faithfully journeyed to worship the Lord at the temple each year, at Shiloh. It's about 19 miles from Jerusalem, where the temple would eventually be erected by Solomon, a different temple. This one, perhaps starting as the tabernacle, there may have been some effort that was put into it to make it a more permanent structure, a more stable structure. That's debatable. We don't really know. But here is Eli, the priest, who manages, so to speak, the ritual worship of God here at this central location, where there is the ark of God in the very presence of the Lord. So Elkanah is something of a religious man, a spiritual man at this place of great trial in Israel's history. Verse 4, on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. The setting here is that Elkanah has sacrificed an animal on the altar, and he would, according to custom, then share portions of that sacrifice with his family. And here's Penina with, as the phrase says here, all of her sons and daughters. She has a lot of children. Hannah comes to these meals by herself. There's no children. So each year, as Elkanah brought his family here, he would honor Hannah in this meal by giving her a double portion, which was a way of saying, you are special to me in the culture of that day. But this was far from one big happy family. Verse 6, And her rival, that is Hannah's rival, Penina, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Nice lady, huh? Penina would purposefully humiliate and torment Hannah, the Hebrew words indicate, provoking her into a state of severe emotional agitation. And Penina apparently delighted to use the family's annual pilgrimage to Shiloh to torture Hannah with reminders of her barrenness. The whole family would make this journey together and she would continue to remind her of her deprivation. A horrible situation. So it went on, verse 7, year by year. This didn't happen just once, but happened repeatedly. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Now I want us to stop and to think just for a moment here. This isn't the deal with Hannah's neighbor with some workmate or somebody that she's working with in the community. It's not a distant relative. This is Hannah's life. This is her family. This is what she is dealing with every single day of her life. 
Penina's tormenting words were so evil, she would reduce Hannah to tears until Hannah lost all appetite for food. The double portion did her no good. She was empty and hurting. And Elkanah loved his wife Hannah, but her husband's attempts to fix the situation with words were pretty worthless. We notice that in verse 8 as he enters into the picture. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? And he wears the hammer for this guy's head, right? These ridiculous questions. Am I not more to you than ten sons? His first wife is being emotionally tormented by his second wife, and all he can come up with is, hey, isn't it enough that I love you? Isn't my divided love for you better than ten sons? Not only does Hannah suffer from the torment of Penina, she has a husband who is clueless, respecting the depth of her heartache. Hannah would seem to many to be the most unlucky woman on earth. The narrative now moves to a specific visit to the tabernacle of Shiloh. Bring all of this mess to the tabernacle, to the temple there, and see what takes place in this setting. Verse 9, After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Eli the priest is seated by the entrance of the tabernacle, the temple there. And he has a good view of Hannah who comes into that area and is praying. She is pouring out her heart. There are tears of grief and prayers of desperation. She longs for God to hear her cry and to intervene in her life. And Eli watches from a distance. Verse 11, she vowed a vow as well and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. No razor touching his head is, if we would know the Hebrew context, is an offer of a Nazarite vow, a complete devotion to God. The Nazaritic vow included abstinence from grapes in any form. No razor was to touch the hair, and this one could also not touch a dead corpse. But in one sense, every firstborn male belonged to God. But Hannah is uniquely dedicating Samuel here, any son born to her, to the lifelong service of the Lord. She does not ask for a son for her own satisfaction. She does not ask for a son to get back at Penina. She will give this son unreservedly back to God. Now, verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Talk about bad luck. This woman cannot catch a break. Here she is, broken-hearted, with desperation, pouring out her soul to God, and Eli accuses her of drunkenness. This is something that was going on in the tabernacle area at this time. Indeed, Eli's own sons were noted drunkards and helped others to get in this state there as they 
manage the temple area. They were godless men, but knowing that Hannah has just dined with her family, he assumes that she, like others, is drunk, and he grumps about it a bit. Something happens in Hannah's exchange with Eli. Something happens to Hannah. Now, there's a little period of instruction here to Eli, and we need to watch that, but something happens in Hannah's heart. Watch it. Verse 15, but Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. I have been pouring out, she says, not drinks in dissipation, I've been pouring out my soul in earnest prayer to the Lord. Please understand, I'm not, literally, a woman of Belial, a worthless woman, one who seeks the release of drunkenness. Her release comes not through alcohol, her release comes through her prayer and through what Eli says. Verse 17, he responds. Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel Grant your petition that you have made to him. That's it. He's basically just saying, I'm sorry, I blew it. But let's remember who Eli is. He is a priest. He is the one who stands between God and Hannah. I don't think that what he is saying here is, you will have a baby. God has told me he's given me a prophetic word, and I'm telling you, you will have a child. I don't think that's his point. I think he's basically just saying, I'm sorry, God, go with you. May things be eased over here. But he is a priest. He stands between her and God, and he thus speaks a word to her, in a sense, from the Lord. Go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition. Go in peace. As priestly mediator, these words offer assurance to Hannah. Not a promise for a baby, but a comforting word from the sovereign God. And so, verse 18, And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. In other words, thank you for patching things up here. But indeed, may I find favor in your eyes. But notice the next phrase, verse 18, Then the woman went her way and ate. And her face was no longer sad. Now we need to think here carefully. It's hard for us because we know the story. You say, well, of course she's happy. She's going to have a son. She doesn't know that. Let's think of what we do know about where Hannah is right now. What does the text tell us? Hannah enters this season of prayer, quote, deeply distressed. Verse 10. She wept bitterly. Verse 10. She was in a state of affliction, verse 11. She described herself as a woman troubled in spirit, verse 15. She spoke out of great anxiety and vexation, verse 16. Is there any question where she's at? This is one troubled woman. But as this same woman walks away from that season of prayer, her appetite returns and her face is no longer sad. Why? Text doesn't tell us. 
We have to think about it. We have to contemplate it, work through it a little bit. Is it because she has taken revenge on Penina? Clearly not. She has no children. She's going right back to this family clan with all of Penina's sons and daughters and Elkanah. She's not bringing a child back. It is not that God guaranteed that she would bear a son. Her relief does not come from God removing her trial at all. Her husband Elkanah is just as dense. Her rival Penina is just as evil. Her home is just as miserable. And her womb is just as barren. But she leaves all of that behind and she comes back with a face that is lifted, eyes that are bright, a spring in her step. She's no longer sad. I believe that it is Eli's blessing that seems to spark this change in Hannah's hard attitude toward her trials and certainly coupled along with her prayers. Eli the priest who mediates between her and God has assured her she may go in peace. His word serves as God's word of assurance to her in her prayers. A pagan would have no relief until a baby son was born. We continue in a state of vexation and distress until God gave you what you wanted, a baby. This is no pagan praying. Something else has happened. Hannah has not solicited God to reverse her bad luck. She has prayed to the sovereign God of the universe and rests in the assurance that he will do what is right. That she can go in peace. What has changed is not God's will. What has changed is Hannah's heart orientation toward her trials. The victory comes not with a change of luck, Not even with the birth of a child. Victory comes with a change of heart, with a renewed perspective. Hannah chose to rest in God in the midst of all of her distress and trial and vexation and difficulty. And we read then of her blessing in verse 19. They arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. Apparently just another word for the earlier lengthy term given in verse 1, and Alcana knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her, not that he had forgotten her, but in the Semitic sense to respond with special favor, and in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked him from the Lord. The idea, sound of Samuel's name. Now, I don't think that the point that we should draw from this is that God never answers a prayer with no. God does not answer every prayer as we wish. But every prayer God answers with yes or no is a choice he makes for his glory and for our good, never a victory that he wins over chance. He's not a superman that we whistle and bring on in to fix the problem. If I can say it in the right sense of the term, he's at the heart of the problem. He's in it from start to finish. He's a sovereign God. There is no such thing as chance and luck, good or bad. The key point here is I think that Hannah's infertility was not owing to bad luck, but was an aspect of God's unique redemptive purposes. I mean, we can't really miss this. 
if you're reading carefully through the Old Testament and you come to 1 Samuel and you find out that a woman doesn't have a child, what do you say? Something's coming down here pretty soon. This is, this is a unique situation and God works in these kinds of situations. There's a common motif there. Sarah didn't have a child. Rachel couldn't have children even though the promise went right through these people. Samson's mother couldn't have a child. Elizabeth with John the Baptist. God works through these kinds of situations. He is an artist whose hand we learn to detect in the painting. We see him working with this trial, with this difficulty, and we say, she's barren, God's up to something. There is indeed some tremendous linkage between Samuel and his mother here and Samson and his situation as a judge. Remember, Samuel will be the last judge of this era. Think of Samson. He was a deliverer of the Israelites from the Philistines in Judges 13 through 16. His mother was barren. He is also the only other person specifically identified in the Old Testament as having taken the Nazaritic vow. You see where Hannah is. Like Samson's mother, she is barren. And she dedicates voluntarily her son to be one who would take this Nazaritic vow, to be devoted to the Lord. So like Samson, she desires this son and dedicates him. Hannah knows in the history of her people that God delights to work his saving purposes through unlikely people, and she says, I'm an unlikely person. And I long for God to work. We see the hand of the artist here, don't we? We see this hand working its way toward the greater Savior, Jesus Christ. Far more unlikely than Sarah or Rachel or Samson's mother or Elizabeth is a virgin from Nazareth who conceives to bear the Savior who would rescue His people not from the Philistines but from their sin. God is working. He is preparing. Through Samuel there will come the anointing of a king by the name of David. And it is this David who will stand as the father of the Messiah, the one born to a virgin. And I don't think it's any mistake then that in Mary's prayer in Luke chapter 1, when she learns that she will conceive in her virginity and bring forth the Messiah, the Savior of God's people, read her prayer and note the parallels with Hannah's. She's tracking right with her. I am a poor woman. I'm not important. I'm from Nazareth, I'm nobody, I'm a peasant woman, but God has won a great victory, she says, very much like Hannah. There are two concepts I would like us to draw specifically from this narrative. The first is a word concerning idolatry. We are not to pray God will fix our streak of bad luck. We are to pray that God answers our prayers so that we might release back to Him any blessing that He chooses to grant us. You see, Hannah's prayer is not as one has noted, you give me X and I'll give you Y, but rather you give me X and I'll give you X. And that is exactly what she does. As verse 21 goes on and you skim down through, we find 
that indeed she does bear a son. And that this son is turned over to the work of God at Shiloh. In verse 26, she says to Eli, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. There's a play on words there with the word lent. Not that she's borrowing him, as we say in Minnesota. But she is giving him to God's service, and he worshiped the Lord there. She gives to God the answer to her petition. And it leads us to question, what is our trial? What is your trial? God may choose to never relieve it. That is his sovereign will. If his sovereign will decides that, that is right and it is good and we leave that with him. But if he does, it is at this place that idolatry can step in. Are you willing to release the answer back to him. We're not called to do precisely what Hannah does here with every gift that God gives. And please, I really hope that no one will show up at our doorstep today and give us their kid and say, here, this kid's here for, to serve in the church for the rest of his life. Obviously, we're not going to do exactly what she does. But here's the point. Are you praying for relief from a trial so that you may embrace God's gift as an idol? We may be begging and pleading with God to give us what we desire so that we might embrace it as an idol. I want a child. I want a mate. I want a job. I want financial reversal. I want health. I want this person to treat me differently. I want this situation to prevail. I want this, and God, I would be sure that you would want me to have this. Many times the things for which we pray are good things. The things that are to be desired. But maybe the telltale sign that we are really praying as a pagan is that the relief from our anxiety comes only after God relieves our trial. It's only after He gives us what we desire, only after He fixes what we want, then there's relief, then there is peace with God. You see the point. We want what we want, and we hope God will give it to us but we want what he gives more than we want him. And in all of our fervent prayer, what we're really doing is praying like a pagan. Give me what I want, that I might then be at peace. Hannah was at peace before the answer ever came. And it could have been no, or it could have been yes. That's not where she found her peace. Do we pray like pagans? This is a stern warning against idolatry. A second word, and that is concerning redemption. We need to gain this from this text, I believe. Our sovereign Lord is at all times, in all circumstances, laboring for the redemption of his people, for our salvation. Again, our salvation is complete in Christ, but he is ever working to deliver us from this world of sin. 
There's a work that is going on. Our salvation is complete in our justification, but it is also progressive and leading us to the final salvation when we meet the Lord. He is always laboring for the redemption of His people in all things, in all circumstances. He doesn't just labor to bring us to a place where we confess Christ as our Savior, where we are converted, but He is always working this way. And here's where we've got to jump on the wagon. This is not just true of Hannah and Samuel. We see that so clearly in their life when we put all this judges and prophets and kings and all of these things together and say, yeah, this is how Samuel fits in. He's doing a wonderful work here. Look at all that God is doing. And we say, well, it's got nothing to do with my life. He doesn't work that way in my life. Our lives may not be as big in the sense of salvation history, but Christian, please know that every trial you face locks into God's larger redemptive purposes for His people. It is a piece of the puzzle, and whether that piece is large or small, it is essential. And He's doing that in our lives as His people. He is always up to big things in everything that we are experiencing. The only other answer is that chance is running the universe. That we're just the victims of bad luck. But we know better. And we can say that what he was doing in Hannah's life in the midst of her trial, he is doing in your life and mine as God's people. In some way, shape, or form. Our trials may be God's discipline for our sin. We may suffer the results of a cursed earth, just generally. We may suffer persecution. But as we pray, we should not pray merely that God would reverse our fortunes. We should pray that God use us to glorify His name in the outworking of His redemptive plan, which is often taking place in the midst of all kinds of trials and heartaches. We should pray that God use us to glorify His name in the outworking of His redemptive plan. And in the end, that's all that's going to matter. Do you realize, Christian, there's a day when the pain's going to all be gone? I don't know how God will do that. We're going to leave a bucket load of pain behind in this world, and I don't know if he just clears our memory or what happens. Probably we just see it from his perspective, but there's a day coming when the pain will be gone and Satan will be history when we stand in the presence of Jesus free from sin. A day is coming. And on that day, when Satan is gone and sin is gone, and we stand as we should, redeemed and glorified in the presence of our Lord, then we will never regret any trial that we have suffered in this world. We do now. It's hard. We don't want any part of it. But not on that day. Not when we see God's redemptive purposes and see how He was working in us to purify us, to change us, to bring others to saving faith through the trials and difficulties that we face. Someday we will understand how God used the ordeal of this fallen world to purify for Himself a people. What is your trial? What is your heartache? What is your suffering where do you identify with Hannah? You can know this, Christian, 
We're not pagans. We don't plead that God will just fix our problem by intervening against chance. We can know that our sovereign God is in it all to the very core. He is changing us. He is making us. He is redeeming a people of his own. Let us go in peace then as we trust God to the very end. Let's bow for prayer. We confess to you, Father, how small we are. How easily our trials and disappointments and difficulties overwhelm us and drag us down and leave us grasping for answers outside of you and finding in our own strength the solutions that will quickly relieve our difficulties. God, we are small and we need our faith to grow. And I pray that you would meet us in our need and that together as an assembly we would understand one another, that we would be faithful to one another, that we would hold one another up in our weaknesses, but God, that you would build in us a strong faith by your mercy and grace. There are so many trials and heartaches. But God, we pray that you will help us to endure them and to bear them with faith and confidence and rest, that we would be at peace in what is. Because what is, is part of the story that you have written for reasons we may not ever understand in this earth, on this earth. But reasons we know are there. We trust you. Help our lack of trust. There may be those among us who have not come to place their saving faith and confidence in this ultimate Savior, Jesus Christ, who has come to deliver us from sin through his death and resurrection. I pray, God, that should there be any among us in that state today that they would turn from their sin, renounce their own ways and their own wisdom, walk out of the darkness by your grace and mercy alone and embrace the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Father, help them to see what is at risk, their eternal destiny, their separation from you in judgment and wrath. I pray, God, that they'd turn. I pray that they'd embrace this grace in Jesus and that they'd go in peace today. If there is not that peace in someone's soul, God, I pray that you would place it there by granting faith and sight. For those of us who know you, Father, we long to go in peace and we know how easily troubled are our small hearts. God, enlarge them to know that in all things you work together for the good of those who love you. In all things. We don't get it. We don't see it. But God, we thank you for your word of confidence. And by your grace, we'll trust it. Help us to that end. In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen.